Hey, I'm Dr. Jamie Newman. I'm an associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Louisiana Tech University. I'm also the associate dean for research and graduate studies in the College of Applied and Natural Sciences. It's great to be here today with our special guest, Dr. Taj Azarian. Taj is an assistant professor at the Burnett School of Biomedical Sciences in the University of Central Florida's College of Medicine. Hey, Taj, thanks for being here. Hi, that's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. It's wonderful yeah. to be here today. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So Taj is our latest speaker in the New Frontiers in Biomedical Research seminar series. This series for the past 10 years has been bringing renowned scientists and scientific communicators to campus to share their research, meet our university community, and contribute to a professional network for collaboration with our faculty and students. I had the pleasure of meeting Taj about 18 months ago um, as we began working together on a project to engage communities in understanding and preventing the spread of COVID-19. So Louisiana Tech, along with Grambling State University and LSU Health in Shreveport, represented one of four regional programs. The other three teams were working in Wisconsin, Massachusetts, and Florida. Together, we each develop ways to work with our local communities to monitor the spread of COVID-19, specifically in Lincoln Parish, where Louisiana Tech and Grambling State University are. Um, we were able to develop a local program where we sequenced positive COVID-19 test samples and monitored the presence of specific variants in our community. We were able to do this on our campus, bringing new technology to both our universities. Each regional team, um, given that they were in different communities, took a different approach to their community projects. So Taj, if you could tell us a little bit about what your group was doing over in Florida. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you just said 18 months. And, and I think that's and, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it feels like a long time, but we actually just uh, observed, I think, the three-year anniversary, so to so we yeah. call it of yeah. identifying the first uh, case of SARS-CoV-2 in, in the United States. So we're at three years now into the pandemic. And I know a lot of people, you know, use the term post-pandemic, but we're, we're still very much in it. We're still observing new variants emerge all the time. Yeah. And while a lot of us have gone back to our day-to-day -day interactions, of course, we're sitting face-to-face -face right now, probably mm -hmm. something we wouldn't have been doing 18 months ago. Uh, know that there's still a lot of people out there that are working on responding to the pandemic. So, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we got to know each other through this uh, wonderful work but through the Rockefeller Foundation, bringing a lot of researchers together that normally wouldn't interact. And the whole idea was to expand our genomic monitoring and response uh, to the pandemic. So using viral genomic data to understand how the virus was emerging, evolving, and some of the associations with differences in how it was behaving, whether you know one strain was more virulent or caused more disease than another. And so locally, we were working very closely with our State Department of Health, with the Florida Department of Health, to try to increase the sampling from places where you normally wouldn't get samples from. And so we worked with our student health center to get a number of isolates from our uh, students. And uh, as we've discussed, we were also doing wastewater surveillance. So using that as kind of a way to monitor activity in the community and together had been using those informations uh, in, in conjunction with our county health department to really kind of monitor the and, and assist with the response to be able to guide uh, what our response and our guidance was to our students and you know, what we were doing in our classrooms and uh, our, our policies in relation to uh, SARS-CoV-2. So it was, it was definitely uh, very helpful, you yeah. know, to, to be involved in that. And, and as you said, part of this is uh, bringing me here is, is uh, part yeah. of that research and collaboration and networking. And certainly I think that it, it did a lot for that to get people together, to, to work together, to uh, from 
research from industry, from uh, state and local health departments and uh, national health agencies to work together to, to really respond to, to the pandemic. Yeah, a really interesting time for for the scientific community to kind of come together in a new way, right? Not meeting each other, not going to conferences, but coming together over Zoom and emails to share information and, and research new areas. And for both of us, I think, in talking to you over the last day, this was not your area, COVID-19 viruses in particular, and not mine either. I'm a stem cell molecular biologist, but I had a real-time PCR machine, so I got into wastewater testing that then led us into this project. Um, can you tell us a little bit, back up and tell us a little bit of how you got into the COVID research, what you were doing before, and how it prepared you for that? Sure. So I definitely overlapping fields. Uh, I, I'm, I guess, what I consider a genomic epidemiologist. So I, I use uh, pathogen genomics to understand how bacteria and viruses transmit and spread in various settings, whether that be a hospital, the community, or around the globe. So when you and, say pathogen genomics, yeah. you mean? So we, we are taking the genetic code and mm -hmm. identifying it for those uh, various organisms. And uh, as I like to say, we build family trees for them. So if you can mm -hmm. imagine like a, a family tree of your ancestors, we do the same thing with, uh, with viruses and bacteria okay. or any living thing. And then based on the relatedness, we can understand uh, how related two samples that we sequence are to each other. And that tells us a number of things. It tells us uh, how things are moving. So if we have samples from Florida, for example, that are closely related to samples from Louisiana, we can assume that they were related in some recent transmission. Uh, similarly, uh, it will tell us about how fast a pandemic is or a, a virus or pathogen is growing. So the, by looking at the number of changes in the genome over time, you can get an idea of how fast it's expanding and how fast it's being transmitted. So there's a lot of information you can glean from genomic data. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the niche that I fell into. Um, I think traditionally I was trained as an epidemiologist. I was just uh, working in the field of public health and had uh, for a time worked for the Florida Department of Health, and at that time I got really interested in investigating cases of disease and outbreak investigations for a number of the reportable diseases. Um, so people aren't familiar, like there's a hundred or so reportable diseases that if you uh, get diagnosed with that you uh, have to be reported to the state or local health department. And most people, when they think of that, they think of the big ones like HIV and TB, the other sexually transmitted infections, but there's a whole, whole other bunch of them. There's uh, foodborne illnesses. So if you go and uh, eat at a restaurant, get salmonella, that gets reported. So that's the type of thing that I was working with. I was taking those cases of foodborne illness and, and uh, investigating them, identifying outbreaks. And at the time, it was, you know, this was probably 10, 15 years ago, it was uh, using simpler molecular, as they refer to them, techniques. So instead of looking at the whole genome, you're just looking at tiny pieces and using that to understand that same relatedness. The problem is, is that's not as resolved as uh, when we have the entire genome. But when I heard about this new field of, of pathogen genomics and genomic epi, I, I knew this is kind of where I had to be. So I actually decided at that time to go back to school and get a PhD and ended up uh, using uh, that opportunity to study transmission of staph aureus, which is a, a common human immune uh, transmitted pathogen, and uh, hospitals, specifically in neonatal intensive care units. So, so you're able to use what you learned in, in your public health work and translate it into a research career. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And I know we talked about, we both went to college thinking we were going to be doctors, as many of us who like biology think we're going to do for any number of reasons, most of which is it's the only thing we know 
people do when they like biology, I think, as you become a doctor or our parents pressured us to be doctors. Right, right. <laughs> um, but along the way, you obviously did not pursue that that path, right? So so can you talk a little bit about your journey through school and what led you to public health? Yeah. So I, I you know, always joked that I knew I wanted to be a scientist. I actually have a, a, my mom keeps this little framed piece of paper that I wrote probably around second grade. So around my son's uh, age right now, my oldest son's age, where it says, you know, what do you want to be when you uh-huh. grow up? And I wrote scientist with a backward <laughs> S and backward C and stuff. So uh, that hopefully that was a little earlier yeah. than that. I mean, maybe that was more like first grade yeah. or kindergarten. But I I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to be a scientist. And, and uh, in high school, I was in a magnet program that was a, a health science magnet. Mm-hmm. Uh, got certified as a nursing assistant. So oh, at wow. this time, I, like, I was definitely like, I'm going to medical school. Right. You know? And I, I, that's where I saw myself uh, going. And I, along the way, had, had read a lot of books. I read the book Hot Zone, which is mm-hmm. if anybody's ever seen the movie Outbreak, it's basically like a better book version of uh-huh. that, right? And to talk about... <laughs> The Ebola outbreaks in West Africa and the emergence of, of Ebola, and uh, there's a there's a few uh, other books by Richard Preston who, who uh, wrote that book who are more fictionalized mm-hmm. that were exciting. I uh, there's a book by Ken Alabak who's a defect, uh, defected Russian scientist who was in charge of the Russian bioweapons program during that time during the Cold War. Uh, that's called Biohazard, which is a, a, a great book and kind of mm-hmm. like extremely scary. If yeah. you're, like, not in the field. you're like, how many gallons of what? Like, what? We, we don't, you know. So I had read all those. And, and at the time, yeah, I didn't know that I was reading about epidemiologists. Uh-huh. And, and that's basically, you know, the people that went out and did ring style vaccination to cure smallpox and the people that the uh, CDC Epidemic Intelligence Service uh, fellows who went out and, and really uh, we're trying to investigate Ebola while it was emerging. Uh, those were all epidemiologists, people yeah. that are trained in, in tracking, you know, the disease detective. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, like, that's what I wanted to do. And you had to be a doctor to do that because all the people at that time were, were medical doctors. And so I was on that path, you know, did microbiology in undergrad and then um, got higher up. And, and, you know, to be honest, just wasn't doing as what I needed to do on the MCAT. And that's, you know, <laughs> for those that don't know, that was the entrance exam to, to medical school. And I was getting super frustrated. Um, I just, you know, I knew the material, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, the test just wasn't, wasn't yeah. working with me. I had the grades and the experience. I'd worked in long-term right. care facilities as a nursing assistant. So, you know, I definitely wanted to do that. Right. And at that time, I was super frustrated. And uh, ran into a friend at a uh, at a get together, and she's like, you know, everything that you're telling me really sounds like you'd really like public health. And mm-hmm. I was at the University of Florida, and they they had just started their master's in public health program at that time. And I was like, really? And I so I I went and I I looked at the program, and I realized like, hey, yeah, these are the people like epidemiologists. I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. know this, right? Yeah. And and that's how I kind of fell into that field, and and uh, it was a great program. I worked at, at, at that time, we had kind of like capstone projects where we would uh, have some experience. So I worked at the health department in Alachua County, which is in Gainesville, uh, where the University of Florida is. I also worked in uh, infection control in a hospital. And so those are the people that track healthcare associated infections and make sure that when you get a, a central line for an IV that you don't get an infection from that. And was just intrigued by that whole field. And, and uh that led me to working for the Department of Health as uh, as a fellow for them, and then later at the Duval County Health Department. 
lived through H1N1. So I was there in 2009 yeah. during H1N1. I remember, you know, that was supposed to be my pandemic of my time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were activated in the emergency operations center during this, uh, the whole response. Got to be on TV a few times wow, yeah. uh, talking about hand hygiene and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Uh, not so much mask wearing at that time. Yeah. Uh, and then, as I said, I kind of got, I, I was there for four years um, going through that and then wanted to do something more. You know, I, I knew I didn't want to be upper level management at the health department. So I went back and pursued a PhD in that one thing. Yeah. For another. Yeah. Uh, we, we, as we said, we overlapped in Boston. So yeah. <laughs> I, I went from UF to a postdoc at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked with uh, Bill Hannage and Mark Lipsich, two amazing uh, researchers there who focus on disease modeling and disease ecology and evolution, and really just learned all of these tools uh, along the way on how to do genomics and bioinformatics and all the yeah. things you need to, yeah, to do. Yeah, that's that. great. And I think that that journey, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how many students we interact with in our job. And it's one of the things that I certainly really enjoy in, in helping them find their path. And I think a lot of them think you come in knowing what you want to do when you grow up. And I think a lot yeah. of us are still figuring that out, even as we're in our careers now, right? That you you sort of take the opportunities as they come to you and try new things and yeah. and see where it goes. And, and I definitely think that there's not one set formula. And mm -hmm. I, I see a lot, as, as I was saying, we have a very big undergraduate program, uh, depending on, on where we are between 3,800 to 4,000 undergrads yeah, that's in a the lot. biomed program. <laughs> And, and a large proportion of those want to go to medical school, and, and they kind of all follow the same formula. Mm -hmm. They know they need clinical hours. They know they right. need lab research hours, which, again, you're talking about many undergrads, only yeah. so much faculty. <laughs> How many research hours are, are you going to get? So right. there's a huge demand for that, and they're all trying to kind of check the boxes. Yes. And what happens is you get a lot of kind of – if you did all those things, you end up with very cookie-cutter experiences. Right. I – you know, I – most of them have been scribes in the, you know, in the yeah, hospital. Yeah. It's like the most common thing yeah. that I see. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that formula, but you have to be firing on all cylinders. You have to have uh, a high GPA, high MCAT score, you, and all that experience. What happens is, is I see a lot of people, they, they don't do well in some classes or they're not pulling in the GPA, and they kind of still power through. And so what they missed out on in like the process of, of filling that formula and checking those boxes is they missed kind of those nuanced and novel opportunities. Yeah. And, so and, focused in on one path yeah. that they're not open to. And as I others. said, like I just, I had the opportunity to become a CNA. I, you know, I, I did that. Yeah. I was in the long-term care facilities and got experience like caring for, for elderly patients yeah. and yeah. or residents, I should say residents. I, I got yelled at once. For <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and I would say, like, with that experience, if you didn't want to do patient care, you would immediately know right, that, right? Yeah, like, you'd be like, sure. oh, my gosh, I'm yeah. in high school. Like, I wanted to be a doctor. And, like, I don't like taking yeah. care of people. Yeah, you know? like, right. that, that's a red flag. Or um, also in that interim between starting the master's in public health, I worked in a food microbiology laboratory. And that was basically high throughput, sitting there pipetting and yeah. culturing, you know, thousands of samples a week looking for listeria and E. coli yeah. and all these things. And you know what that taught me? I didn't want to be a bench scientist. Right. <laughs> like I, like I'm like, this is not yeah. for me. I don't yeah. want to so sit here all day. Yeah, so process of elimination is good too. Yeah, and at the same time, like. it gave me experience. It, yeah. you know? And then uh, working at the health department, I would say it was probably the most worldly uh, thing that I'd, I'd come in contact with because in, in Jacksonville, we were dealing with you know, a lot of health disparities that I hadn't been exposed to before. I actually did a project where we were working with uh, 
with uh, um, refugee services. So mm-hmm. they were a refugee receiving center. And uh, we had a, a number of Burundi refugees that were coming that had malaria. And I helped track down wow. these, these individuals and uh, get them on different treatment because at that time, that malaria strain, I'm getting off on tangent. That's okay, that, no. <laughs> that, that malaria strain had become resistant to uh-huh. the, the current t- treatment. And uh, I, you know, I didn't know anything about refugee services yeah. before that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, all these look at all the services that I learned, like Christian charity, like all these different services that are there supporting uh, refugees uh, that were coming out at that time. Would have never known about that. The primary care that we offer to low and middle income uh, yeah. families, women's care, and just this whole like logistical framework that exists in our society that we don't know yeah, about. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, how often do we think about reportable diseases? Right. How often do we think about healthcare for underserved mm-hmm, communities? Mm-hmm. And what does that actually look like? And until you've like talked to the people that are living right. and going through that, it really gives you like a sense of empathy and sense of exposure and just getting yeah, outside of your which comfort is so area. critical, especially yeah. if you go into healthcare and right. have that perspective. And again, I think that ties back to just my my uh, advice to anybody is just be dynamic in your experiences. You know, don't yeah, I was going to ask, what what yeah. is your advice when those kids come in and they're like, I have to be a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I'd say if, if I get them early enough, so if uh-huh. they're coming to me as a freshman, I'd say, first of all, like, don't check the boxes. Be very dynamic in your experiences. Don't say, you know, don't say no mm-hmm. you know, to an experience. If, even if it's something you, you're outside of your comfort zone, you never know when you're going to discover something that, that's going to change the way that, that you... Uh, your career is. And actually, I had I had kind of one of those watershed moments when I was uh, doing that capstone project at, at the uh, in infection control. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I, I investigate staph aureus now. So I had a, um, I was working there and I got a, uh, we got a call from one of the ICUs where they had a, a 17-year-old that came in and they thought he had meningococcal disease. So meningococcal disease is highly transmissible. It's caused by the uh, bacteria in Neisseria meningitidis. And if you identify a case of that, you have to prophylax people in close contact, which means we have to track down all the students in this class, all of his family members, and give them antibiotics so that they don't also develop this this bacterial infection. And the reason they thought of this is because he had this kind of disseminated rash across his body that are called petechiae, so it's very characteristic of the disease. And... They were working him up. We were doing the contact tracing. I, I was working. I was there with the infection control nurse who I knew, Kay Stoffer, and um, and also the the county health department investigator who I had also worked with, Journey Shapiro, who still works at the University of Florida now, and worked all this up, found all the co- the contacts, and then I the next day we got the diagnosis. We heard from the the research lab that it wasn't meningococcal disease. It was actually Staph aureus bacteremia, and the kid ended up dying. So he was a football player. He had got, uh, I think, like a basically like a hangnail or something, not Mm -hmm. to scare all the listeners, (laughs) but but got a cut on his foot. You know, Uh I mean, you get in sports, especially football, you get a lot of abrasions. There's been lots of big NFL teams out there that have been put out. uh, Also, some college teams out there that have been put out for staph virus infections. But he got a cut. Uh, It it became septic, and he died from sepsis. And I think at that point in my life, I was like, holy crap! Like this bacteria took down this 17-year-old yeah. kid that was in the prime of his life. And that was when I learned about MRSA or MRSA, like methicillin okay. resistant uh-huh. staphylococcus, and learned about the problems of antibiotic resistance. Yeah, And that was so poignant that, I mean, I was I was not too far refer, removed from that. I mean, I was, right. you know, in my early 20s at the time. Yeah, it was yeah 17. very relatable. Yeah, yeah. so it was, it was a very poignant moment. And I think at that time, 
I, I really got into researching bacterial uh, uh -huh. infections and Staph aureus infections. And then that kind of, I mean, I still work on Staph aureus today. Yeah. So that, that was something that really kind of uh, left me with uh, this motivation to yeah. pursue this area of research, which again, you know, is just let the experiences lead you. Yeah. You, know, you, yeah. you, you never know where that's going to take. And I didn't know that that would lead me to research. I thought, you know, I'd be working at a, a county or state or national health department right now. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe yeah, I'll still do that still, one day. Yeah, it could still you know? happen, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, that that's my advice is just do that. And then also, you know, take off the blinders sometimes. I mm -hmm. think that you, you sometimes people get so... And, and not just students. I mean, people in general get so preoccupied with checking those boxes. Yeah. You know, we, were, we were talking about being parents and yeah. you know, trying, to, <laughs> trying to conform to, to the expectations. Yeah, all of, the things your kids have to kids. do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're like, okay, you know, sp organized sports, right, check, you know, right. healthy, healthy meals we were talking about, right, like, you know, yeah. no processed foods, right. like check, like exercise and reading and all this yeah. stuff. And you're like, you're, you got this such focus that, that you can get frustrated when one of those things doesn't work out. Right, right. And, or and, it doesn't fit your kid's personality yeah. and you like force them right, down right. a path and, that and really so wasn't good for them. I think that's human nature. We right. just want to like, if we hit a brick wall, we're like, no, we're going to break down this yeah. wall. We can overcome it. Yeah. Where, where reality, it's like, don't be the rock, be the water, you know, flow around it. Yeah. When you hit that wall, find the other opportunities out there. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look to your size and find out how to go. Like life is not a, a, a linear thing. It's the securitous route through these experiences. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, as, as you progress, just like, Real, take a step back and be like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Right. You know, look, yeah. look and see, first of all, do you really want to do this? Yeah. And secondly, like, what are the other options? And if you're somebody that's interested in medicine, the options these days are endless. Yeah. The health sciences is a huge field. You don't have to be a doctor doing patient care. There's right. so, I mean, my wife's a pharmacist. I, I, she probably, when she was doing retail pharmacy, uh, she was probably helping more people in a day than I think most providers. Yeah, no, I yeah, mean, I, you know, I have doctor right, friends right, out there, right. so I can say that too. Yeah. But, but then most like, you know, the providers were. She would get more time with the, her, her patients and her customers mm -hmm. than um, than uh, most providers. And, and so... And she was pre-health as well. Right. So there, there's just don't get pigeon, don't pigeonhole yourself into one career path. Yeah. Step back, and if you have kept your experiences open, then you'll be able to diversify. Just, just yeah. be diverse. You know, yeah. be different. Well, that's part of why with this seminar series. So the new frontiers started about ten years ago. Dr. Calderon Moore and I, who you met, Mary. Uh, work to organize this and and it was to bring in people who are doing different things different areas of research different specialties than we have on our own campus so not only could we as faculty meet you and engage with you but that the students could see that there's a whole world of research opportunities in biomedical sciences and that became so popular that the biology department does a weekly seminar for the same thing so now it's all the diverse areas in biology and we offer it as a class so students sign up for this class and they have to go to seminar every week so it's great because it might be a seminar they wouldn't naturally go to because they think oh, I don't care about this topic but they go and realize oh this is really cool and it actually is related to things I'm interested in or I didn't know that was a path I might enjoy and so we've kind of forced them into some things but but I think they're seeing more opportunity because of it. So yeah. that's great. I mean, that's yeah. great to get them that exposure. Mm -hmm. You kind of force them to go outside their comfort yeah, zone yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, because it's uncomfortable. So yeah, yeah. yeah, people don't always want to do that. Yeah, um, you have to do that. And and I think that, that once you have let yourself open to those experiences, you will find 
you will find your path and you'll wind up doing something. And that's also a way to wind up doing something that you really love to do. Yeah. Because I, you know, most research I know really love what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and they love the field that they're in. And that's kind of the ultimate goal is to be doing a, a career and a job where you don't feel like you're just punching a clock. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's got its good and its bad parts of that, you know, like the yeah, you know, research yeah. <laughs> people in our field always joke that like, you know, we, we, I feel like there's that PhD comment where it's like, what? Like, I don't have to right. work. You know, I, I can work whenever I want right. and all this stuff. And then and then it's like, oh, I can Which work really whenever like I want. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Sunday night and you're like still working. And it's like, you know, right. Thanksgiving day right. and you're still working. Right. Like, oh, yeah, I can still I can yeah. work, you know, whenever yeah. I want. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but either way, you're you're excited about what you're doing. And I think, you know. Yeah, I, I, well, there's always something new to learn, whether it's in your research or I learn a lot from the students and teaching the classes and engaging with them. Yeah. So, yeah, and they talk about fun. being, you know, being a lifelong learner. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. that's what it is. And yeah. just like, it just also, never left college. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I always feel better. Like, oh, I could have gone back and done. Like, I like geographic. It's so funny. Like, I, geographic information science. Uh-huh. Like mapping. Oh, yeah. Making we have a maps. GIS program here. So yeah. I really yeah. loved it. Like, I, I, did, I did two classes in, in my graduate work uh, on, on mapping. And I was like, I could totally do a PhD yeah. in this. I love making colorful yeah. pictures. You know? <laughs> like, all this stuff and the spatial epidemiology yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, looking at when you can incorporate social determinants of health in there and you have like all these different data sets and mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out how they all interact spatially and then you end yeah. up with like these cool you know figures at the end of yeah. it so yeah i mean it's like you, you pick up these skills yeah. and you find these weird things that you like and uh that get you excited and and you, you add those tools to your toolbox yeah. or something you never know when it's going to come in yeah, handy exactly exactly well it's it's awesome how much you love what you do what do you like to do outside i always think it's it's nice to know the humans who are doing the work. You yeah. know, that you're not at the bench all the time. You have two kids, and um, ours are about the same age, so I'm sure you spend a lot of time with them. What are other things you enjoy doing outside of the lab? Yeah, so I have, I have two boys. They are very high energy. You yeah. know, that's, the, that's the euphemism that <laughs> right? most parents like to say. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, but they're great kids, and they're really smart, and it's fun to watch. You know, They're in second grade and kindergarten right now, so it's like a – big learning years, yeah, right? You watch yeah. them grow and all this stuff. You know, the kindergartners, they go from not reading to reading. Yeah. My saying. undergrad advisor told me this would be the greatest developmental biology experience of my yeah, life yeah. was yeah. <laughs> and, having and children. It, this is that double-edged sword I was right. just talking about. You're like, oh, I could shape these kids' lives right, and like right. all this, like mold them. And then you're like, oh man, I'm shaping these yeah. kids' lives. <laughs> like they, they blame me for the good right, and the bad, exactly, right? exactly, exactly. Uh, but along that way, you also realize how like inherent their, their personalities are to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Right there, uh, my my oldest one's a carbon copy of me, and my youngest is like a mix of my wife. And yeah, I. so like yeah. you're never going to be able to predict those uh, those personalities, yeah. and, and like you just have to go with their, you know, go with the flow. Right, Again, be right, water, yeah, right. be water. You know, go, don't keep like right. putting your head into the problem. Right. right. Uh, so so yeah, so that that's a chunk of time. I also. Man, I, I probably have more hobbies than my, my wife would, would like. <laughs> I just, I really get, like I said, I get excited about lots of things. Yeah. So it really is easy to get me like super, take this very like analytical brain and, and yeah. focus it on all kinds of weird yeah. stuff. So I would say like my biggest thing is uh, I, I've been practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for over 10 years. Wow. Uh, I'm a brown belt under Ricardo Laborio, who is um, one of the most renowned uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners uh, in the world. Wow, yeah. And he, I'm lucky enough to have him in uh, Orlando. And actually, he's a faculty member at University of Central Florida. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, he teaches a uh, uh, beginning and intermediate jiu-jitsu class. Mm-hmm. And it's, of course, very well. We have a department of kinesiology uh-huh. there, and, and uh, all the kinesiology students love to take it. Yeah, uh, It's a great course, and he's one of the first people to bring, actually, a college course where they where they teach jiu-jitsu. Hmm. And uh, for, for those that don't know what jiu-jitsu is, it's a martial art that uh, focuses on grappling. So if you watch any MMA, it's basically everything that ha- – well, everything happens that once you get on the ground, although, like, taking people to the ground is, is a big part of it. So we uh, – basically a bunch of people sweating and rolling around with yeah. each other, uh, <laughs> choking each other and trying yeah. to extend limbs and directions that <laughs> they don't go. But the reason I love it is, is two things. One is that it's, uh, it's highly intellectual – Mm-hmm. So there's an endless combination and pathway of uh, of movement. Okay, and like strategy to yeah, anticipate. I mean, and... highly higher brain analytical. Uh-huh. I mean, people, the analogy that's often used is like chess. So okay. there's you know, th- setting up people and, and like sacrificing your pawn or uh-huh. is the equivalent of like letting them think they're taking a position and then using that uh-huh. against them. Huh. Uh, so it's a very analytical process where you have to think ahead of your, of your uh, opponent or your training partner. Uh, so that that's one part of it that I really always yeah. appreciate is that analytical side. The other the other part of it is uh, the that are I think are integrated or kind of actually two things is the mental health aspects of it. So first of all, when somebody's trying to choke you out, you're not thinking about your grant deadlines. <laughs> you're not thinking about the bills that you have. Uh-huh. You're not thinking about the arguments or the the spill that the kids uh-huh. made before you left the house. The only thing you're thinking about is getting out of that immediate right. position at that spot. Yeah. So the the mats, when I go into the mats, it's like the my calm place mm-hmm. where I can clear my mind. Uh, just be, you know, people use the word mindfulness. So just yeah. being in the moment. Yeah. You're you're there with, uh, and this is where it goes to another part, you're there with a, a bunch of people that you have this tremendous re, uh, relationship with where you kind of, you sweat together, you spend an hour trying to beat each other up. And <laughs> afterwards, you're laughing and hugging each other. Yeah. And, uh, you're you're chatting about life and you yeah. meet so many diverse people. So it's not, you know, it's you, you I think that's the other thing is it's like the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. Like you go to the mats, Sometimes you're wearing like a gi or like the traditional mm-hmm. uniform. Other times you're wearing just shorts and a rash guard. But it brings in people that you don't normally interact yeah. with. Regardless of race, ethnicity, physical aptitude, mm-hmm. you do not have to be a world-class athlete to do this. You can be a 90-pound woman to a 300. I mean, this is like the right. like yeah. uh, people I've trained with. 90-pound females to 300-pound, you know, men or so. that They get on top and you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, from all walks of life. Yeah. And you can sit there and sweat and train and learn and then afterwards talk about stuff that you would never, I mean, uh, yeah. it, these would be people you might get in philosophical arguments uh-huh. <laughs> with otherwise. But it's all erased. It's, it's like the great equalizer. So. Uh, all of that plays, I think, into the the mental health aspect. Yeah, of it. Just no, being I think there, that's great. Having something having else. Use. Yeah. You said you're a runner, so it's, yeah, probably, it's, yeah. it's very similar. I've heard to like the runner's high. Like yeah. you get in the zone, your mind gets yeah. to like. Yeah, it's know. good to go out by yourself and just have that time to think and reflect or 
be calm and listen to your podcast or audiobook yeah. or run with friends and disconnect from everything else. Yeah, it's so critical to have that. Yeah. So and it and it gives you know it gives me something to work toward and I don't yeah. know you know why. Yeah. It, it's just something that uh, has become such a big part of my life and my my uh, oldest son Nico trains jujitsu as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried not to bias that a lot. <laughs> you know, he wanted to do martial arts, but I tried to let him. You know, have his op- uh, his right. uh, opportunity to choose for himself, and yeah. I try not to push him and and stuff. But uh, I try to make it a game when I when I you know play fight with him yeah. and his little brother uh, Dimitri. So we you know we do that, and and uh, it's a good you know family activity. But yeah. that's that's my main thing. And then you know I again hobbies. I got back into saltwater aquariums after a, a long time. <laughs> that that ties very closely <laughs> into uh, my like interest in biology. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. I, first of all, my wife and I are scuba divers. So okay. we, you know, we haven't, we've been taking a hiatus since having kids, but we used to dive a lot. And uh, I, I love the ocean. I love coral reefs, uh, dive all over Florida. And uh, I was in saltwater aquariums and, and college. And then I begged and, and finally <laughs> filled the spot, this little yeah. niche in my house that I wanted to put an aquarium in. Yeah. So I, I uh, I got the aquarium in there, and I'm dealing with an algae outbreak right now. Yeah. That's like not very visually, aesthetically yeah. pleasing. And, uh, yeah, there's like, I mean, there's 50 gallons of water sitting right. you know, yeah. in, your, yeah. in your house. And yeah. that, it also takes responsibility and time. Yes, yes. We uh, used to have an yeah. aquarium, and when the fish died, we uh, did not resurrect the aquarium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we have corals in there, too. Yeah, now. that's the, awesome. The kids love it. I mean, yeah. my, Dimitri, my youngest, is super into it. He loves going to the fish store with yeah, me. Yeah, but... Uh, but it's, uh, again, like, you know, responsibility takes take, yeah. takes through times. And yeah. then... Uh, my last one that I'll share, I, I also, one of these like resurrected uh, hobbies during the pandemic, I got back into collecting comic books. And okay. it's like, you know, it became in vogue again because of all the Marvel movies. Yeah, and yeah. And uh, Nico really likes comic books and everything Marvel. Yeah. So I, I got back into comic collecting and it's something fun that's like, again, very passive yeah, to, to be able yeah, to, yeah. To, to do. And you I, I saw in your office, you have a lot of like signed books. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And so I'm really interested in that in comics, like the artists and the creators yeah, and everything yeah, that, that yeah. if I, I get signed comics. It's like yeah, a, yeah. As I told you, I just love, well, why I asked the last question, I just love learning people's stories and how they got where they are and who they are as people. I think it makes the when you talk about science and you learn about science and our students read about things in a textbook I think it's so important to remember the people who did it the people who were impacted that they could be those people too right we have crazy hobbies and we're not perfect um, and we didn't get there on a straight path but we're doing things we're excited about and having an impact so I really appreciate you being here Taj welcome to North Louisiana I hope you have a great visit Um, yeah thanks so much yeah thanks for having me Thank you for listening to Beyond 1894. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about this episode, check out our show notes. Beyond 1894 is produced by Louisiana Tech University's Office of University Communications.